Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here again. Quick on the heels of Joseph Needham Part 1. Today, in this 156th CHP episode, we look at Part 2. In Part 1, you may recall, we went all the way up to 1943 after Needham finished the first of several expeditions around the Middle Kingdom to explore China's science and the history behind all these inventions and technologies. And also as head of the Sino-British Scientific Cooperation Office, the Jianqiao Dashue Yu Zhongguo Dashue He He went from one scholastic institution to the next during his travels and offered whatever help and support he could, on behalf of the British government, that is. The first trip was the most perilous and ambitious, but he and his compadres on that adventure, H.T. Huang and the great New Zealander, Rui Alley, navigated all the setbacks, and the mission yielded some good finds. And Needham got to have his moment in Cave 17 of the Mokau Grottoes and got to see the paintings, carvings, and manuscripts in all their glory. It was a very inspirational moment, and after taking it all in, he then went on to cover as much of the rest of China as he could. When Needham returned to Chongqing, at once he prepared to visit Fujian province, the city of Fuzhou in particular. This was in uh, May of 1944. He called this sojourn the Southeastern Journey. I guess with Fujian being in the southeast of China, that sounded like as good a name as any. She didn't accompany Needham on this journey, but his wife and colleague, Dorothy, had come to China by this time and was staying with him in Chongqing. Remember, by this time, Japan is beat, but the war still had more than a year to go yet. This southeastern journey was another one of those hair-raising adventures. Over the period of about a month, H.T. Huang and Needham took trains, trucks, and riverboats to get to where they were going to, every day bringing some sort of scary moment or unexpected dangerous encounter. The nationalists still managed to hold sway along the coast in Fujian. When Needham showed up, the word on the street was that the Japanese were coming soon and there was going to be a fight. Needham did what he had to do, and just ahead of the Japanese advance, he got out of town and went back to Chongqing. Whilst in Fujian, he visited as many institutions, schools, and places of science as possible. As he did before, he took stock of what supplies and equipment or books these places requested, and Needham promised he would do what he could. The marquee event for Needham during this brief Fujian visit was that he met up with Murray McElhose, Lord McElhose, we discussed in the CHP 110 History of Hong Kong Part 10 episode. He was the 25th and perhaps the greatest of all the appointed colonial governors of Hong Kong. Before he went on to a stellar career as a British diplomat operating out of Asia, Murray McElhose was a spook operating behind enemy lines during the war in China. He was a larger-than-life figure, and not just physically. Needham and the future Lord McElhose got on famously in Fuzhou, where they met up, shared stories, and took a few side trips around the vicinity. Needham became the beneficiary of a vast amount of books purchased on this trip. Like with everything else, they were all forwarded on to Cambridge for future sorting and reference. So Needham and H.T. made it back to base after narrowly averting disaster and capture at the hands of the advancing Japanese army. They cooled their heels in Kunming for a bit before Needham joined Dorothy in Chongqing. 
For his third expedition to inquire into the state of China's academic institutions of higher learning, he went southward to the Burma border with China. Like he had done everywhere he had gone, Needham mixed with his fellow scientists who, despite the war and savagery going on around them, still carried out their experiments and went about their business as best they could under the less-than-ideal circumstances. And like he did everywhere he went, Needham filled up notebook after notebook of observations and things he heard from the Chinese scientists. A lot of space in his notebooks focused on an object of his fascination that later became known as the Needham question. The essential question that nagged Needham his whole later life was why did modern science, after it began with Galileo, Kepler, and Descartes, develop in European civilization, but not in Chinese. Why, between the 1st century BCE and the 15th century CE, was Chinese civilization much more efficient than Western civilization in, as Needham said, quote, applying human natural knowledge to practical human needs, end quote. And what were the inhibiting factors that threw a wet blanket on the development of modern science in China starting around the 16th century. Needham phrased it this way, quote, Why did modern science, the mathematization of hypotheses about nature, with all its implications for advanced technology, take its meteoric rise only in the West at the time of Galileo? Why had modern science not developed in Chinese civilization, or Indian, but only in Europe, end quote? No definitive answer has ever been proffered as far as exactly why this happened, but it sure nagged Needham enough, and he spent the second part of his life agonizing over this. In the end, Needham concluded that, quote, There cannot be much doubt that the failure of the rise of the merchant class to power in the state lies at the basis of the inhibition of the rise of modern science in Chinese society, end quote. Needham said the Confucian-based government in China, going back to the earliest times, never had anything except contempt for the merchant class, so they were never going to rise to the levels where power could be controlled or influenced. In the West, the merchant class was an organized base that used institutions like guilds and associations to influence government, or they entered politics themselves and selfishly promoted science so as to become beneficiaries of any major discoveries. Even the Arab and Persian scientists after 1500 did not embrace modern science like it was institutionalized in Europe during the Renaissance. Prior to that, the scientists of the Islamic world led the way in discoveries in mathematics, astronomy, and geometric optics. And then all the leadership and understanding and innovation came to an end. Same in China. So much great learning that came out of the East including technologies and inventions over the centuries, were transferred east to west. But after about 1600, modern science in general, and modern physics in particular, did not thrive or grow in the east for almost a couple hundred years. Around 1150, this would have been during the southern Song period, just after the Second Crusade, all the greatest surviving works in Arabic and Greek were translated into Latin for the first time ever. And you can only imagine the influx of knowledge that flowed from the East to the West, both great and small, that mingled with whatever discoveries the West had made up to that time. 
So it truly is a great irony that the introduction of all this Eastern science and learning to the West sort of primed the pump for the beginning of the revolution that began in the 16th century with the introduction of modern science in Europe. So that's what's known as the Needham question. No one knows the answer to this, although every expert on the subject has a theory or two. Needham spent another 18 months wandering all over China and meeting with scientists and professors from 296 institutions that he managed to visit. He arranged for tons and tons of supplies, including books, for those who asked. In February 1945, Needham was called to D.C. for a regional diplomatic meeting. There he was reunited with Guizhen for the first time after his China experience. Needham used backdoor channels to get Guizhen assigned to his staff, and the two returned to China together. This caused quite a silent uproar. Some were outraged that Needham, who probably was not the least bit discreet, was bringing his mistress into the fray to mix with everyone and be involved in their work. What's up with that? Some made a big deal about this, and the whole thing sort of turned sour from that point on. In March of 1946, Needham got called back to England by one of his Cambridge friends, evolutionary biologist Sir Julian Huxley, later founder of the World Wildlife Fund. Sir Julian was forming a certain organization whose mission was to promote world peace by encouraging cultural exchanges and educational cooperation. It was going to be called UNICO, the United Nations Educational and Cultural Organization. Sir Julian asked Needham to get involved and serve as an officer in the new organization. Thanks to Needham's involvement and insistence, science was inserted into the mission statement and the organization therefore became known as UNESCO. Needham worked at UNESCO heading up the natural sciences section. This was 1946-47. Y'all remember from those John Service episodes what this time was like in the U.S. We were losing China. And the stage was being set. Right about now for the Red Scare that lay ahead. The word communist was starting to get a fouler odor than usual as far as the U.S. government, the Truman administration, and the American public were concerned. This is from a CIA memo dated February 19th, 1947. Quote, Embassy Paris reports that Professor Joseph Needham, a temporary British UNESCO official, who was apparently a protege of Julian Huxley, director general of UNESCO, is a member of the Cambridge University Communist Group. Huxley dismisses the matter with the observation that Needham is a, quote, good communist. Pursuant to authorization from the UNESCO General Conference, Needham proposes to negotiate an agreement between UNESCO and the Soviet-backed World Federation of Scientific Workers. The announced plans for UNESCO, together with the recent conviction of another British scientist, Dr. Alan Nunn May, of giving uranium samples to the USSR, point to grave dangers implicit should communists occupy strategic posts in the scientific projects of the UN, unquote. So the good old CIA, and no doubt the FBI as well, had Needham in their gun sights so early in the game. The McCarthy hearings won't start for another six years, but already in 1948, everyone can feel the ground starting to shake. All it's going to take for all hell to break loose is some communist great helmsman to come along and conquer China. 
Needham hung around UNESCO for a bit longer, but by March 1948, he was back to where he once belonged, safely ensconced in his crib at Keyes College in Cambridge with his wife and mistress living down the street. His being part of UNESCO was turning into a detriment and was impacting further funding. So he took a powder, but at least left an impact as the one credited with putting the S in UNESCO. And so, as Simon Winchester put it, quote, Now it was time to begin his mission, to create the volumes that he felt sure would put China's reputation in its properly deserved place in the pantheon of world's leading nations. It was time for his book to be born, end quote. We remember Needham mostly for his great work, Science and Civilization in China. This is what he dedicated the rest of his life to. Of course, he was active in many other things as well, but this was his life work. And Needham sent a proposal to Cambridge University Press for a book that, quote, will be addressed not to sinologists nor to the general public, but to all educated people, whether themselves scientists or not who are interested in the history of science, scientific thought, and technology in relation to the general history of civilization, and especially the comparative development of Asia and Europe, end quote. Needham believed and did his best to show that in looking at the advances of humankind everywhere over the millennia, it was China who gave a greater part. He was going to tell this story, quote, of how over thousands of years China, in relation to the general history of civilization, had contributed to this development. It was Needham's considered view that China had contributed to a far greater degree, and far more actively, than all other nations, and moreover, had done so far more than was either known or recognized. End quote. So in May 1948, Needham, after careful thought, told Cambridge University Press he could get this whole story of science and civilization in China told in seven volumes, and that an undertaking of this magnitude would take about ten years. He was way off course, but that was his best estimate at the time. Cambridge let Needham off the hook as far as any of the less desirable work went, being a professor, you know, teaching biochem or dealing with grad students. They pretty much let him do his thing, and beginning in the summer of 1948, they allowed him to solely focus on this potentially monumental work. As a helper in this endeavor, Needham was fortunate to have with him as his chief research assistant over the next nine years, a man from Nantong in Jiangsu named Wang Ling. If you recall from the last episode, a small detail, Needham once stopped in a place called Li Zhuang in uh, Sichuan. When he was there, he met with Wang Ling. Wang's unique specialty was the history of mathematics in the Han Dynasty. He was a perfect collaborator, and on volumes one to four, his name was right under Needham's. He later ended up at the uh, Australian National University, today home of the Australian Center on China and the World, and the distinguished China expert, Professor Jeremy R. Barmay. Wang Ling passed away about a year before Needham in 1994. Anyway, they were a very good team, and Wang Ling is one of the I won't say unsung heroes, but definitely made a very great contribution to this work. If you recall during all those years in China when Needham was working on behalf of the Sino-British Scientific Cooperation Office, he accumulated a lot of books and artifacts. Everything had been dutifully forwarded on to Cambridge, where one day everything needed to be sorted and organized. 
And that day had come, finally, and one by one, everything was put in order. In addition to the massive collection sent back to England from China by Needham, there was this other collection that came from a former president of Zhejiang University and China's foremost paleo-meteorologist, Dr. Zhu Kejun. Dr. Zhu had met Needham when he was in China, but he must not have made much of an impression because other than noting his name down, Needham didn't say much about the encounter. But unbeknownst to Needham, he had made quite an impression on Zhu Kejun. And this was made known one day when the collection of books to end all collections showed up at Kiyas College. Zhu Kejun knew what Needham was doing, and I guess he understood the importance of the mission. So with his great scholar's eye, he took it upon himself to begin gathering anything and everything of potential value to Needham's study of the history of science in China. The trophy item from the collection was the 1888 edition of a work commissioned in 1700 by none other than the Kangxi Emperor. This was the complete collection of illustrations and writings of ancient and modern times, a.k.a. the Imperial Encyclopedia, a.k.a. the Gu Jing Tu Shu Ji Cheng. This work took a little more than a quarter century to compile and complete 170 million characters and 10,000 volumes. The edition sent to Needham at Cambridge comprised 2,000 volumes. The one uh, we have here in the Library of Congress is comprised of 6,000 volumes. Zhu Kejun, by the way, graduated from my alma mater, University of Illinois, in 1913. I followed him 68 years later. He's also on the list of famous sons from the historic city of Shaoxing, Needham and his team got everything sorted out, and to say it was one hell of a research library is quite an understatement. There he was in his study in one of the most hallowed academic institutions in all the world, surrounded by a vast wealth of knowledge contained in these thousands of books he had accumulated. If that wasn't the ultimate scholar's cave, I don't know what is. As for his living arrangement... Needham and Dorothy set up their residence at 1 Owlstone Road at the corner of Grantchester Street, and Luke Wei Chun lived down the street on Owlstone Road at number 28. Did he have it made or what? Let me quote Simon Winchester again, as I've done throughout this two-part series. Quote, he cut an impressive figure, at least in part because he was so tall and broad, built like a bear. He invariably wore a dark suit, pinstriped, double-breasted, rumpled, the collar of his shirt, freshly laundered, was nevertheless always disarranged. His tie askew and his shoes, though clean, were scuffed, the laces frequently broken and retied. He kept his brown tortoise-shell glasses well-polished, however. He parted his thick hair on the right and was careful always to have it well-brushed, though it was usually just a little too long." End quote. Well... Hardcore scholars and researchers around the world, no matter where you are, you all know what that loving feeling is like. It was one long mass orgy of reading, taking notes, typed by himself on his royal typewriter, cross-referencing, translating, writing, and collaborating with the finest and passionate fellow researchers. Wang Ling always at his side. There are stories about Needham's legendary mind when all 12 cylinders were working at full throttle and his ability to focus and concentrate on whatever it was he was looking up. Simon Winchester pointed something out. It reminded me of Mozart, who 
supposedly could write his music straight from his mind's eye to the paper with no corrections, ever. So did Needham write Science and Civilization in China. His first draft was always the final one. Let me quote Simon Winchester again, quote, He decided initially to make a great historical list, a list of every mechanical invention and abstract idea, the building blocks of modern world civilization that had been first conceived and made in China. If he could manage to establish a flawless catalog of just what the Chinese had created first, of exactly which of the world's ideas and concepts had actually originated in the Middle Kingdom, he would be on to something. If he could delve behind the unforgettable remark of the Emperor Qianlong made to the visiting Lord McCartney, not Sir Paul, in uh, 1792, quote, We possess all things. I have no use for your country's manufactures. If he could determine what exactly prompted Qianlong to make such a claim, then he would perhaps have the basis of a truly original and world-changing work of scholarship. But he needed evidence, and a great deal of it, end quote. The task was daunting. Without the aid of any of the marvels and conveniences we have in our day and age, Needham, Wang Ling, Guizhan, and others behind the scenes began combing through every single text in their possession or what they could get their hands on and noted down one by one every mention of some Chinese invention or basic science. Nowadays, this would hardly be as formidable an undertaking. But the way Needham did it, the way he had to do it, there was no other option, was through sheer brute force and determination. As a worker might use their muscles to move mountains, Needham had to use his brain power. But the fruits of their effort didn't take long to fall to the ground, little by little. Needham wrote, quote, What a cave of glittering treasures was opened up. My friends among the older generations of sinologists had thought we should find nothing. But how wrong they were. One after another, extraordinary inventions and discoveries clearly appeared in Chinese literature, archaeological evidence, or pictorial witness, often, indeed generally, long preceding parallel or adopted inventions and discoveries in Europe. Whether it was the array of binomial coefficients, or the standard method of interconversion of rotary and longitudinal motion, or the first of all clockwork escapements, or the plowshare of malleable cast iron, or the beginning of geobotany and soil science, or cuteness visceral reflexes, or the finding of smallpox inoculation. Wherever one looked, there was first after first. End quote. So they kept plugging away. Needham and Wang Ling, they had accumulated quite a list so far how to work with iron, build bridges, and perform other amazing feats of ancient civil engineering. They chronicled each story in meticulous detail. The stirrup, I mentioned in the uh, early Four Great Inventions podcast episode, Simon Winchester called it, quote, an invention that had an effect on mankind out of all proportion to its size and to its apparent early significance, end quote. The game of chess, long thought to have come from Persia or India, actually originated in China as the game of Xiangqi as early as 200 BC, the time of the founding of the Han Dynasty. It came to India first, but from China. Simon Winchester said, quote, depending on the way the arithmetic is done and considering only the most intellectually fertile phase of China's history between the Han and the Ming dynasties, Needham pointed out that in every century, the Chinese dreamed up nearly 15 new scientific ideas. 
a pace of inventiveness unmatched by the world's other great ancient civilizations, including the Greeks. The nature of the inventions was remarkable enough, Needham wrote, but the rate at which they came was like nowhere else on earth and like no other time in history. By the time the year 1950 came around, Needham looked at everything he had so far and thought, he had enough. It was time to get that first volume published. He had decided to write the book in seven general sections. The first volume, which served as a kind of setup for everything that was to follow, ran 248 pages with 36 illustrations and a 50-page bibliography and a 20-page index. Volume 2 would run 698 pages, and Volume 3 would weigh in at 680 pages. It was figured out early on. The estimates for time and pages required to tell the story were grossly underestimated. No detail was too small or too trivial. If it was important, it was included. Once the project had sufficient momentum, Lu Guizhen joined in as one of the core researchers. And when excerpts were ready for vetting by the scholarly community... They were dutifully sent out. Volume 1 wouldn't come out till August of 1954, but Joseph Needham's perfect little world is going to come crashing down before that happens. It all began in early to mid-1952. The China government claimed they had evidence that proved the United States had used bacteriological weapons against the Chinese and North Korean troops during the Korean War. Lined up with China was the Soviet Union and, of course, North Korea. The U.S. and its allies all dismissed this as BS, and the whole matter was quickly politicized. Zhou Enlai had taken charge of this matter. China wanted to put together a commission that wasn't under the thumb of the West or the U.N. Zhou knew of Needham and looked at him as the most ideal candidate to head this non-Western bloc commission. That is, he was internationally renowned and respected, and at the same time, China-friendly. Joe used the great writer, poet, and archaeologist Guo Moro to act as the intermediary to try and hook Needham into doing this. Guo had told Needham that China had hard evidence showing the U.S. military was spreading vermin and diseased rodents all over the Korea-China border. He said that all these bioweapon techniques had all been picked up from the Japanese ghouls running Unit 731, who the U.S. military had captured after the war. A commission was put together, sponsored by the Soviets and China, called the ISC, which was simply an acronym for International Science Commission. Needham was leaning towards getting involved with this investigation and finally acquiesced, and once he was in, he was in. From June 23, 1952, until the investigation was finished and the report was signed off on August 31st in Beijing, Needham dominated wherever they went. The team carried out its work in Beijing, then Shenyang, and North Korea. The ISC members were taken from one Potemkin village after another and got to take part in a real snow job. Needham had interviewed so many of his trusted scientific colleagues in China, and they all earnestly told him that everything was true. About 200 scientists were interviewed, as well as a cast of hundreds of others who were alleged eyewitnesses, and not always reliable ones at that. So when all was said and done, despite all those fishy smells he kept smelling, Needham, in the final 665-page report issued by the Commission on September 15, 1952, 
concluded that the Americans had indeed used methods developed by Japan's Unit 731 to infect Chinese and North Korean citizens with cholera, leprosy, and anthrax. The final report had corroborated everything Premier Zhou Enlai had publicly claimed about the whole matter. This International Science Commission led by Needham had already left China in July 1952. Our poor hero had no idea what kind of maelstrom he was going back to. One thing he noted in his journal, uh, Needham left China thinking the place was really in need of a dressing up. Drabness, we in the West associate with Cold War communist fashions, really made an impression on Needham. It didn't take long after the report got out before Needham started being called a traitor and a scoundrel. The press had a field day and couldn't tongue-lash him enough. The British government was not happy that one of their own went against the grain and for such a dubious cause at that. All the combined forces worked in concert to assassinate Needham's character. Even in the hallowed halls of Parliament, he was denounced. He remained defiant, only backing down to the extent that he would admit that he was 97% sure the Americans did it. Even at Cambridge, the only shoulders he got close to were cold ones. That was quite a come down to go from being one of the great shining stars of Cambridge to becoming more or less a pariah. Over in the land of the free and home of the brave, the McCarthy herrings were still a ways off. But you'll remember from that four-part series covering the life of John S. Service that we had already lost China and the far right was already in a lather about who to blame. So when word got back that Needham used the entirety of his good name and reputation to back this report, they too demanded their pound of flesh. And anyone who dared to show sympathy or agreement for the report was hissed and booed. And to show they meant business, good old Uncle Sam put Needham on the 1950s version of a no-fly list. He was refused a visa and told not to visit any time soon. For an academic such as Needham, that was a big blow. But maybe a guy as savvy and well-read as Needham should have known that the early 50s was not a good time to be throwing your lot in with Mao and the Chai Khans. Well, let's just say disco had already come and gone in the U.S. the next time Needham was allowed back in. Needham realized only too late that he had been duped by the Chinese who were aided and abetted by their big brother at the time, Soviet Union, and all of his Chinese colleagues played him for a fool. And besides, with Joseph Needham's anti-imperialist policies, his communist leanings, his desire to help the new China, all maybe contributed to his turning a blind eye when his better sense told him danger lie ahead. Even in the heat of this atmosphere of condemnation and censure, Needham didn't altogether lay low. He still spoke up vociferously for Ethel and Julius Rosenberg in 1953. Well, what was done was done, and Volume 1 of Science and Civilization hadn't even been published yet. This whole brouhaha couldn't have come at a worse time. Well, for such a sociable person as Joseph Needham, these four years or so in the wilderness... Eating humble pie were quite an introspective period. But he knew this would die down, and die down it finally did. He had everything riding on the publication of this first volume. Up until now, his fame and reputation had been built on his contributions in the field of biochemistry and embryology. He had thrown himself into China studies beginning in 1937. 
Now it was 17 years later, August 1954, and this was his debut as a China scholar. The title page said, Science and Civilization in China by Joseph Needham, FRS, meaning Fellow of the Royal Society. Sir William Dunn, Reader in Biochemistry in the University of Cambridge, Fellow of Gonville and Caius College, Foreign Member of the Academia Sinica, with the research assistance of Wang Ling, Academia Sinica, and Trinity College, Cambridge, Volume 1, Introductory Orientations. And as I think I mentioned in Part 1 of this series, it was dedicated, quote, to Lu Guo, Merchant Apothecary in the city of Nanjing, this first volume is respectfully and affectionately dedicated, unquote. Remember, Lu Shi Guo was Lu Guizhen's father, and he was the one who filled her head with ideas about China's forgotten scientific and technological past. And Guizhen passed this on to Needham beginning back in 1937. It all led to this book, now finally published. In his preface to Volume 1, Needham had written, quote, it has been natural for Western Europeans to work backward from modern science and technology, tracing the evolution of scientific thought to the experiences and achievements of Mediterranean antiquity, end quote. And as for what to expect, Needham said, quote, the scientific contribution of Asia, and in particular of the central country, Zhongguo, China, is the theme of this work, end quote. In the preface, he had also wrote, quote, has not the nature of the genius of the Chinese people been greatly misunderstood by the West? The idea of this genius, so general and so often encouraged by Chinese literateurs trying to expound it to Western audiences as primarily agricultural and artistic in quality, overlooks completely that long succession of technical discoveries which the West took over from China during the first 13 centuries of the Christian era often without the slightest realization of where they had all come from, end quote. Well, lucky for Joseph Needham, the book was met with great fanfare. It was almost universally lauded as one of the great contributions to China studies in the West. The 5,000 copies of the first printing sold out. He was vindicated. And riding on the coattails of this success was the rehabilitation of Needham's good name. Even in the face of such anti-Red China times, he still took a risk and founded the ill-fated Britain-China Friendship Association. The times were not quite right in 1955 to launch such an enterprise, so that fell apart rather quickly. But the idea was a good one, and it was rebranded later on as the Society for Anglo-British Understanding. And that, for 35 years, was the only reliable channel for any British nationals to obtain visas to visit the People's Republic of China. And the co-founders of this institution were Derek and Hongying Bryan, who I mentioned in part one. They met on Needham's Dunhuang expedition. And here they were, all those years later, happily married and collaborating with Needham to launch this society. By 1956, volume two, The History of Scientific Thought, was ready for publication. The reviews were no less stellar than for Volume 1, especially from the community of China experts. Volumes 1 and 2 weren't even the main meat of the entire work. They were just the intros, the setup to the real thing that began only in Volume 3. So Needham already released two volumes, received great accolades, and he hadn't even started yet. Mathematics and the Sciences of the Heavens and the Earth was released in 1959, 
In that same year, Needham was elected to the presidency of the Fellows of Caius College. And there he remained for about a decade, serving during the turbulent 60s, during Beatlemania, the protests, sit-ins, and riots. It was time for the Cambridge Old Guard to step aside and make way for some more modern thinking, and in stepped Needham. This helped to remove whatever tarnish was left on Needham's good name. In 1964, after China had recovered from the Great Leap Forward and the subsequent famine, Needham went to China again. He met with Zhou and Chairman Mao, and whilst chatting with Mao, the two discussed the merits of bicycles versus automobiles. Needham convinced the great helmsman to stick with bikes and don't introduce private cars to China yet, and Mao agreed. As he felt after he returned from the ill-fated ISC trip, the 1964 visit left Needham with a bad taste in his mouth. He saw what had happened as a result of the Great Leap, and he didn't like it. But when he went back again in 1972, he was even more disturbed. The Cultural Revolution was only 60% complete, but already Needham could see most of his friends and scientific colleagues had been decimated. This was a bad trip for Needham. And the man who loved China, though he hadn't lost that love and feeling, was still nonetheless let down at what he experienced. He saw how anti-science Mao's policies were, and this was most disturbing of all. The 1970s were kind to Joseph Needham. It was a decade that saw honor after honor heaped upon him. It was a parade of one honorary degree, medal, and title after another. Universities and institutions around the world praised Needham and his great work. In 1971, he was made a Fellow of the British Academy, founded by Royal Charter in 1902 to promote the humanities and social sciences. And all this time, well into the 1970s, Needham had remained persona non grata in the United States. He still couldn't attend any conferences or symposiums that were located in the U.S. But in 1978... Things changed in America with respect to attitudes towards recognition of the PRC. Mao was gone, Deng was consolidating hold on power, and all the talk was on future U.S.-China good relations. In January 1979, Deng Xiaoping would make his historic visit, speaking at the U.N. and hanging out with Jimmy Carter. Like with John Service, Needham's close relations with China's leaders, one of the things that tainted him all these years, was now a good thing. So the State Department eased up a little, and Needham got his visa. He delivered several talks, uh, one of them at Northwestern University, not far from where I grew up. Uh, the subject was on gunpowder and the whole story of how that came about in China. Attending that session was a man with a particular interest in explosives, uh, a man named Ted Kaczynski. He would go on to use this knowledge with a few other bits of information he picked up along the way to deliver letter bombs between 1978 and 1995, killing three and injuring 23. He is better known today on these fine shores as the Unabomber, now serving eight life sentences without the possibility of parole at the Federal Supermax in Florence, Colorado. And all this time in the 60s and 70s, work carried on with science and civilization in China. Volume 4 came out in 1971, and this is arguably called the masterpiece of the whole work. Volume 4 discussed physics and physical engineering. There were three parts to Volume 4. 
Part 1 discussed physics, Part 2, mechanical engineering, and Part 3, civil engineering and nautics. In this Part 3 volume, Lu Guizhen is mentioned on the title page for the first time in addition to trusty old Wang Ling, who is listed as professional fellow in the Institute of Advanced Studies at the Australian National University, Canberra. By 1975, seven volumes had been published and ten more were in the pipeline, scheduled for release at various times in the future. Needham still had twenty more years to live, so he'd remain the main force behind science and civilization in China. The great literary critic, professor, and universal man, George Steiner, said of Needham, quote, He is literally recreating recomposing an ancient China, a China forgotten in some degree by Chinese scholars themselves, and all but ignored by the West. The alchemists and metal workers, the surveyors and court astronomers, the mystics and the military engineers of a lost world came to life through an intensity of recapture, of empathic insight, which is the attribute of a great historian, but even more of a great artist." End quote. In 1976, Needham stepped down as the master of Caius College. Though only in his 70s, he still felt, in looking at what work that still remained, it was going to be necessary to get a little more horsepower as far as researchers went. But as Simon Winchester stated so well, quote, The project was still his. He was its architect and the builder of the first courses of brickwork. But the upper works, parapets, dome, these would be the work of others. Life was too short for it to be otherwise, end quote. Volume 5 concerned chemistry and chemical technology. Qian Chunxun wrote Volume 5, Part 1, on paper and printing. T.H. Qian, as he was known, was a past great at the University of Chicago. He was a professor of Chinese lit and also served as the curator of the East Asian Library there for three decades. A quick sidebar, T.H. Chen risked his life to smuggle a huge cache of rare books out of China and away from the advancing Japanese army. He had them all shipped to the U.S. for safekeeping, and the Library of Congress looked after them until they were ultimately shipped to Taiwan and could be seen at the National Palace Museum in Taipei. Chen Chunxun just recently passed away on April 9, 2015, in Chicago. 105 years old. Not a bad run, if you ask me. All Chinese libraries here in the U.S. owe one debt or another to Professor Qian. The rest of Volume 5 discussed alchemy, or spagyrical discovery and invention, as Needham called it. For more on the history of alchemy, remember Travis Dow's fine podcast. Lu Guizhen was the primary collaborator on these Volume 5, uh, Parts 2, 3, 4, and 5. University of Pennsylvania Professor Emeritus Nathan Sivan also contributed to Volume 5, Part 4. In the United States, Professor Sivan is known as one of the most expert in the history of science and technology in China, TCM, Chinese philosophy and religions. He was a colleague of Needham as well as Lu Guizhen. Work is still going on today on Volume 5, Chemistry and Chemical Technology. Part 12, covering ceramic technology, was released in 2004. Part 13 on mining came out in 1999. Needham recruited Francesca Bray to write Volume 6, Part 2 on agriculture. Gui Jun wrote Part 1 covering botany. Others have worked on science and civilization and continue to do so today. It wasn't a bad life. 
In between writing, Needham and Gui Jun traveled the world, speaking, raising money for the project. The Needham Research Institute was created thanks to the generosity of horse racing entrepreneur and Cambridge-born famous son, Sir David Robinson. He donated the funds to build a place that would house the entirety of Needham's vast collection of books and manuscripts acquired over a brilliant lifetime. The Needham Research Institute was opened in 1987, with Her Majesty the Queen attending to cut the old ribbon. Dorothy Needham had passed away that year after a 10-year battle with Alzheimer's. Simon Winchester said, quote, Dorothy Needham's last academic testament and magnum opus written in 1972 was a book, Machina Carnis, on how muscles work. Antiquarian booksellers still stock it, charging as much as $250, and it remains a classic. It had been a puzzle to her that despite her distinction and what her husband had once called her complete freedom from worldliness, she remained officially unrecognized by her university and existed only on research grants, which were the basis for a hand-to-mouth existence, and for which she applied and reapplied year after year through the decades of her active life, end quote. As it sometimes happens, as Needham entered his 80s, his body began to slow down. Aside from the Parkinson's, osteoarthritis, and scoliosis, he was otherwise in good shape, and his mind was as clear as it ever was. But to keep the Institute funded, he had to travel. Simon Winchester again. Quote, In the winter of 1986, Needham showed up in Hong Kong, walking slowly and painfully with the help of a stick, to ask for yet further funds from people with unimaginable fortunes. As he stood up after giving a talk and hobbled off, one of his oldest friends in the room, Mary Lum, cried out, quote, Those people in Cambridge are so cruel, sending such an old man to go around asking for money. Give Dr. Needham what he wants. This they did, to the tune of $250,000. Gui Jun waited 51 years for her man, and on September 15th, 1989, a week before I moved to Hong Kong, they got married. But a few years later, Gui Jun fell and broke her hip, and like with so many elderly who had the good fortune to make it to their late 80s and 90s, the broken hip signaled the beginning of the end. Lu Gui Jun died in her 87th year on November 28, 1991. A ladies' man till the very end, Needham sent out proposals of marriage to three more women, but in the few years remaining in his long life, he remained single. The two women who shared in his life were now gone, with only the memories remaining. Let me quote from Simon Winchester again, quote, He worked until the very end, faithfully taking a ginseng pill each morning, just one. Gui Jun had long before told him that his previously customary two were excessive, in the belief that it would lengthen his life. He loved his office. He loved being surrounded almost encased, entombed, and wrapped and swaddled by the accumulated thousands of books and stacks of papers and scrolls and by the walls that were hung with pictures and charts and maps and lined with file cabinets, supremely well organized, that helped him in his work. And there were innumerable objects, too, attesting in aggregate to the extraordinary range of his travels and fascinations." End quote. The end finally came for Joseph Needham on the evening of March 23, 1995.
But his name lives on, and carrying that banner is the NRI, the Needham Research Institute, with its mission to create a wider understanding of the historical contribution of the people of China, Japan, and Korea to the scientific and technical culture of humankind through research, publication, and public outreach. Of Needham's great work, Science and Civilization in China, the NRI wrote, quote, through his writings, he had radically changed the ways in which scholars and scientists evaluate both the history of science, medicine, and technology understood as part of the common cultural heritage of the human race. End quote. Well said indeed. And that, me little beauties, is going to be that. We finished this one off in two episodes, exactly as advertised. For the next episode, we're going back 22 centuries. Be looking for that sometime in the not-too-distant future. But until that time, this is your host and humble narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from the Strip in fabulous Las Vegas. After this beauty show at the Mandalay Bay Convention Center, it is back to L.A., and I do hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll consider joining me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.